This episode is brought to you by 17 Hats, your all-in-one business management platform to save you from time-sucking tasks. Put hours back in your day with easy-to-use features like online scheduling, invoices, contracts, questionnaires, and much more. Learn more at 17hats.com. You are listening to the Photobomb Podcast with the world's greatest photographers, Boo Ray and Gary. Welcome to the Photobomb Podcast. My name is Bure Perry, and joining me as always is Gary Hughes. Yes, it is me again, but this time, and it's rare that we do this. Very rare indeed, because yes. you and I don't like doing this, but we're doing it because this is special. It's a sacred, special moment. We have a guest today. We have, if you don't know who I'm talking about, this man is very famous from Adorama TV. You may have seen him on all types of things from Switch to YouTube. Uh, my kids call him Uncle Seth. And I uh, welcome Seth Miranda, a.k.a. Last X Witness, to the show. What's going on? Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, did you say Switch or did you mean Twitch? He did say he did say Switch. Thank you for calling him out because I was going to get on him if, he, if you didn't. <laughs> good, 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 because we've already had our first gaffe. Let's get it out of the way. Twitch, I meant. <laughs> I was thinking about, I was thinking that you do video games and the Nintendo Switch, and that's what probably, yeah, probably I get it. happened. Yeah, old, old guy scuffle. I get it. I get it. It's okay. Old. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, I don't think you're much younger than me, fella. All right. I think first topic. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I have a topic. I yeah. have a thought. Okay. So we've all gotten these these scam emails for photographers, right? Where you get asked to shoot a family reunion, right? Have you right. gotten these where it's like, hey, I have a family reunion coming up and we got such and such. It's going to be here in your fair city or whatever. Do you accept credit cards? You've gotten this, right? No. Ray, you've gotten it. Oh, I've gotten it. Of course I've got it. You've never gotten one, then? We're in different industries, guys. I don't, I don't uh, market to like that kind of event stuff. So I'm probably not even close right. to that. Or you don't even have to. They just spam every photographer on the planet with oh. these emails. So it's always that they're having they're having a family reunion and they want you to cover the family reunion. And many times they'll even have like a location and all this stuff for you. Uh, and then, you know, do you accept credit cards? Right. And so this was my question. How hard would it be knowing that pretty much every photographer who does portraits, weddings and events has been spammed by email and text using this same technique? How hard would it be if you were actually out there looking for someone to shoot your family reunion to find a photographer that wouldn't just delete your email? I actually had that happen. Like three or four months ago, I had someone who contacted me about doing a family reunion at Maggiano's. And I, and I, was, I had to go back and ask a couple of questions, you know, just to make sure you really are having a family reunion you want me to shoot. And she was like, yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. This is, this is legit. The plus side is that there's always an Uncle Bill in every family that bought that new camera that's always known for taking photos, and that's usually does the family reunion. So most people probably right. aren't looking around too hard for a family reunion photographer, I don't think. Well, let me – yeah, that's that's probably a fair point. That's that's why that scam doesn't work. So let me just background you a little bit because we don't have a lot of um, guests on the show. We Only when it's somebody notable. I think our last guest was probably like a Nat Geo photographer that we <laughs> lied to and tricked into being on the show. And so now we've got you. Oh, and, great. And, 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 and so good. Yeah, we definitely definitely leveled down a little bit, but that's okay. I think right. we're in good shape. The The – was that New York City in the background? Uh, yeah, it's right uh, on the, cue. If I'm recording, somebody no, gets shot it. or something. I don't know. Well, it's it's the ambulance um, 
he's gone in about another oh nope here comes a train awesome that's okay <laughs> let it go i think it adds ambiance this is exactly kind of what i want to talk to you about because you are to your bones a new yorker you are not not only a new yorker but you're specifically brooklyn and i think anybody who knows you knows that and and can sense it in fact there is a seth miranda drinking game i don't know if you're aware of this oh jeez. This is a Seth Miranda drink game. Every time you say Brooklyn, you have to do a shot. Every time you say Brooklyn in any of your videos, you have to take a shot. So photographers out there, check him out. Last X Witness on YouTube. And every time he says Brooklyn, you got to take a shot. So what, what I think is the most interesting thing about getting to know you, and, and we can tell the story about how we met and, uh, and how everything went wrong when I was screaming <laughs> yeah, for right. Adorama. <laughs> Is that you came into the industry in a way that probably most of the listeners of our show would it would be totally foreign to them. And I think that you outside of our industry, like Boo Ray and I, we came up in the portrait wedding photography business. We've done a lot of the conferences, we've taught a lot of stuff. And not only have you come into photography differently, but you came into being an educator in the photography business in a completely different way. So like, what is your, you're coming from a totally different angle on photography than most of the photographers that you connect with. Yeah. And so I would love to get a little bit of background from you on that. Uh, sure. Um, well, I started my career in BMX. I, I shot riders in BMX in, in my early teen years and that was during film era. And, uh, you had to buy, you had to buy slide film. And if you wanted to get any pages in a magazine and hopefully you got paid enough to make it to the next shot, you know, so I grew up learning speed lights on the fly in the middle of the street with cops coming and all that crazy stuff. And luckily I got through it. I learned a lot real hard, real fast. And I got to travel around at a young age and I was using jank gear when I think using janky gear makes you a better photographer once you get the more refined gear, I guess. And uh, somehow my career just kept on going forward and I morphed into shooting makeup, which is weird because... Even in that industry, I don't fit that weird mold because everyone's shooting pretty girls and I'm shooting bleeding zombies, aliens, creatures, spitting acid and all sorts of stuff. You've seen a lot of your special effects makeup stuff and it's very, very cool the way that you the way that you light it very specifically. I think it can it can be sometimes like uh, deceptively difficult. Like it looks simple. The finished product looks relatively simple because it's so clean, but it was actually a lot of thought went into exactly how you place the light and the color gels and all of that to really showcase the special effects makeup that you shoot. Yeah, but isn't that what we all do? Like even when you're shooting headshots, like there's something you're doing that is refining something just that little bit more that that's why they're hiring you. Is like that's why your work is being seen out there because there's something about it that's elevated, right? Right, yeah, I th you know, that's an interesting point because I've watched Boo-Ray do the same thing with like just teaching bounce flash and you, I mean you show like one thing that to you is like why wouldn't you do that? And it's like a magic show. Although I saw, I went to your, your class at Shutterfest recently. We were both in St. Louis and you did that. You did this class where you basically in the middle of an ugly ass, like, uh, <laughs> you know, room, like a conference room, you made it look like this model was sitting in a parked car in the rain with the lights of the city all around him, just with a couple of lights and a big sheet of plastic. It, I, you know, I've seen a lot of classes, but that was one of the coolest piece oh, by nice. piece creative demos I've seen before. And and I think that's a lot of what you're known for is being kind of like the, the Greek Jewish MacGyver of photography. <laughs> well, it's funny because no one signed up for that class. I mean, I think I had 11 people in those chairs. That's not true. There were about 40 people in the room. And that was, that was a solid class. I think the problem is that when you tell, so let's talk about conferences for a second, because you go to these conferences and it's the same formulas of easy this, 
using this, getting more money for doing this. And then I put in a class that's like cinematic portraits and nobody knew what to make of it. But if you walked around Shutterfest, you saw everybody taking the same shot over and over again, right? Girl in a big dress in an interesting room that has no context, but somehow she's lit for some reason doing something with makeup. I don't know. Like I, It's the same shot over and over again. And then you go, well, let's start giving it a context and a narrative. And they, they start getting like, like worried. Like they actually are like, wait, I have to wait. What? Like, yeah. Why are we looking at this? Why are we watching this? Why are we engaging with this image beyond, oh, she's pretty, you know? So I think there we've lost a bit of that, uh, in the trade show education space. Cause it's the same. How, yes. Make a pretty person look pretty. Congratulations. That's the video. Like, I don't understand it anymore. Yeah, it is. It is does get a little samey, and I and I see what you mean. I, you know, Ray and I both have taught at a at a lot of conferences, and what I think is really funny is that you're starting to get asked to do this a lot, and watching you being dragged into the world of photo <laughs> conferences is like watching a cat be pushed into a bathtub. It's really <laughs> uncomfortable Thanks. to watch you try and try and do this because you're you, you you really have been an early adopter of a lot of different platforms online yeah. for education. And and you came up as an educator on YouTube and 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 then broke into Twitch and other things. And whereas walking at a conference and the idea that you're looking around just at one of these conferences, looking around like, why is this? Why is this even happening? Why are all these people here? I don't I don't get this at all. To be fair, like the people aren't the problem. It's the usually the other speakers that have a problem with it, it which is like it's funny because like the last time I saw Bure, I think we were actually doing portfolio reviews at WPPI in 2020. I think we sat next to each other and I'm listening to what these other people are set, telling these people to do. And it was there's a weird line between educators and the people who are trying to sell something to an audience that happened to be educating. And I get that everyone has to make a living. And that's where I have like a very weird relationship with this part of the industry, which I never knew even existed. I didn't even understand this. Daniel Norton is the one who got me into teaching. He was like, I have an event space at Adorama. It's a community thing. Come over here and, and talk. And I'm like, I don't talk. I shoot. He's like, well, shoot and talk while you shoot. And that's where it started was I didn't realize it was even a thing that you could be doing a play by play while you're doing something and taking questions and just doing it. And then when I realized people don't even shoot when they're teaching blew my mind. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> You know, oh, we're going to sell you this mat that tells you to put this light here and the person there, and then you'll be making money doing class portraits for the for a while. It's like, okay, but you're selling a franchise. You're not teaching a craft. You're not explaining a science. You're not elevating a creator, you know? So it, it, you might as well be selling them like a screen printing business or something. Like it didn't make any sense to me. And the wedding industry was like, it, that really felt like uh, get, tell them how to sell them more pages of that album. Tell them how to get the next client. It was more about the marketing than how to actually be your own as a photographer and put the work out there you want that people would want you to do. Well, don't you think, though, you know, from a perspective of being in a room full of people that are trying to make a living in photography, because I, I really believe that there are tons of great creators out there who are making beautiful work. Uh, who are starving for the Absolutely. next, you know, one, wondering how they're going to pay their rent uh, or wishing that one day they'll be able to afford to buy a house and stuff like that. And yet there are a lot of photographers who the three of us would consider pretty mediocre that are killing it financially. 
And if you are going to just do photography straight up as an art and a craft and doing it for the love of it, then you don't really need the business stuff. But at a conference for professional photographers, that type of education, I think, is is really, really important. However, I do think that um, it's hard to fill a class where you're saying, like, talking about business sometimes because people just want to see people shoot pretty girls. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I, I think often it's the other way around. I think a lot of times you do conferences that, that that the people who are just unbelievable photographers, they'll fill a room because everyone's like, oh, my gosh, I want to I want to be able to do that. And then the people who are like, I'm going to teach you how to make money, they fill a room because so many photographers are convinced that they're good. And so they don't need to see the other guy who's good to learn something. But what? But the, the people are willing to admit that they don't know how to do business and they'll take a class on it much more than they're willing to admit that they're actually not a good shooter and they need to take a class on it. Right. <laughs> right. So those people, it's the middle of the road people. It's the, it's the journeyman people. It's the people who are just like, here's how you shoot every day, day in, day out. Here's how you get the shot. Here's how you make the money. Those people have a hard time filling a room. I'm one of those people. And those people, people will have a hard time filling a room because we're not the amazing creators and we're not teaching a class on how to make a $100,000 sale. We're just teaching a class on how to be a straight up solid, good photographer, no matter what you're doing. And everyone already thinks they're a good photographer. Yeah, but I, I think, one, for someone to step into a classroom of another photographer talking means they have to shove an ego into a drawer for a moment. And for photographers, <laughs> that is exceptionally hard. Uh, and everyone thinks they're gifted somehow, but it's the humble ones that really excel and make relationships and, and really want to connect to be like, I don't know this, but you know this and I know this. Do you want to know this? And we start becoming a community because when I was coming up, there was no such thing as a community. I was the rat kid that was shooting everyone that didn't shoot. And then I got the chance to assist people. We do not have that anymore. People watch, buy a camera, watch YouTube and move on trying to do this. And then they go, well, maybe I can make some money at it rather than make it a hobby. And if you get past that weird period of, am I special enough where people are noticing my images, right? Where it's like all about not making money, but just having your work out there and being brave enough to actually put the work you want to put out there. And you're just having fun. I mean, that's what digital did. If you told these people they have to spend money every shot and wait a week to get a result, nobody would be doing this anymore like the way they're doing it now, even though we're seeing a big boom in, in film, but they're doing the boom in film to stand out from all the digital that's out there. So it's like this weird world we're in right now, but at the conferences, I feel like a lot of people rest on this as a social hour. Hey, I'm going to go see another bunch of photographers that know what I'm talking about. I'm going to see the people that I saw on videos and I'm going to go to some classes, but I don't, I rarely see the person that goes to a conference as I'm going to use this to build my business. And when you do, they get as much out of it as they can. But they're like a percentage of that crowd. They're not the crowd. Yeah, but to your point, you know, photographers are, are working solo, most of us. Like, you know what I mean? If we're in the business of photography, you, you know, we don't often have coworkers. We're running small businesses where we don't have a room full of employees. There's no water cooler. There's no, right. you know, so for for a lot of us, myself included, a conference is very often a place where I get to go feel like I'm not pulling this load all on my own. And so I, that is part of that community. And whereas I think, and, and this is kind of, I don't want this to sound douchey when I say it, although inevitably it's going to, but the primary reason I go to conferences is to see my friends and colleagues who are going to be there and to have those social interactions that I only get two or three times a year. 
Now, fortunately, I've been able to go as a as an instructor, which sort of pays your way because you know I got four kids at home. There's no way my, my wife would let me go to all these conferences if I wasn't getting paid to go. But uh, yeah, it is it is critically important, I think, to build that community. And since I think what you're talking about really is apprenticeship, what you're talking about yeah. is 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 learning from somebody like you learned from Joe McNally and from Daniel Norton and just carrying someone's bags around. How many of us came up? Like my first job in the industry was carrying light bags for a photographer here in town, and I did that for like two or three years before I ever took a picture for money. And uh, and I think there is a lot of that that is lost, and, and there is a too much of an emphasis on trying to get the attention of people who don't care if you live or die. Like we get, we're just obsessed with how many double taps we get on our Instagram images and how many views we get on our videos. And rather than creating just for the joy of creating and looking for validation from places where it doesn't even really matter, you know, it's, it's like those true. people will probably never think of you ever again. Well, because the problem is that we put a metric on it now, right? Before you put work out there, nobody double tapped your magazine cover. Nobody, you know, shared around, you know, one of my biggest moments of my life was when I saw a kid I didn't know had one of my tear sheets from a BMX magazine I shot for on his wall. And I said, that's all I needed. Like it didn't pay right. my rent, but it meant everything to me back in my early twenties. I was like, I can't believe that kid did it, put, put a shot like I did when I was, you know, 13. Like that was amazing, you know? And it's, it's, you're right. We're very isolated, but what's, cr I find nuts is we do a million videos a day and let's say something simple like everybody like high speed sync flash what is it okay a million videos on that i did a video on out of boredom live of how to set up a c stand which i thought was the most mundane thing i do all day i love that video <laughs> so i hear that more than anything and i wasn't even going to make that video i just did it cuz some influencer really pissed me off with the way they taught how to use a c stand which would kill somebody and i did a response video to it what I found in that video was all the little in-between stuff that we learned lugging that gear for that other guy, getting sat down on how to properly do the in-between moments, the little details, is not what people are exposed to, but we are. And the little tiny things that I fill the gaps in are what people tune in for. I get more comments about like, I had no idea you're supposed to turn it this way or do that. Like they notice the little nuances rather than the big picture of set light here. Here's how she looks pretty, you know, and you'll get the wide net of people that want that. But if, if we're talking about what we lost, we lost people actually having experience in real life. Yeah, I think that the, in the corporate world, the term that they use for this is tribal knowledge. And so that's the knowledge that you attain from sitting around a campfire together in the quiet moments when, you know, you're filling in those gaps, all the little things that you learn from apprenticeship, from following someone around, from doing those things. And when you're creating, there's such an emphasis on working the algorithm when you're creating for Instagram and for YouTube and for Twitch or, or Switch, as I like to call it sometimes. <laughs> it's kind of a cool new thing that people are doing. But we're, we're, there's such an emphasis on creating for the algorithm. Like on my channel, the most popular video on my channel is I tell what my thoughts are on the iPhone 13 mini. And, and it's like, and every day I get people watching this and commenting on it. And then I have a video that's like how to make sure you get a perfect white background when you take a headshot. And it doesn't have, you know, it's one of them's got like 50,000 views and the other one's got like 500 views. And so like people aren't out there and the algorithms are pushing the big sexy topics, Canon's new lens, the R7's coming out, the Fuji X-H2 megapixel count and all that stuff. And it's those little in-between things 
that are the things that you learn from being in person and with someone, that tribal knowledge that's passed along from person to person. It's stuff that we don't think about to make a video of. Yep. And every once in a while you do. Like one of my, my one of my most popular reels, my most popular Instagram reel is I showed how to open a parabolic umbrella with the cover on it so that you don't have to like, you know, hang the cover around. Like you open the umbrella with the cover already on it and then it's done. And people are like, Oh my God. Oh my God. That, but I never expected that to be a video that anybody would care about. I just made it, you know? And so I think part of the conference thing is the chance to exchange that tribal knowledge. And if you went to Imaging USA and you were there, right? This past year, you guys were both there. If you went to Imaging USA this past year, they actually set up like a whole huge hallway with these tables on it that have different topics and you could go to those tables to sort of discuss those specific topics with people. And they kind of peppered in experienced photographers that could speak to those issues. And so new people could go, Oh, I want to learn about school portraits. Oh, I want to learn about boudoir. Oh, I want to learn about specifically about strobes or something. And, uh, and, and that's really one of the values for me. You can get into the speakers are doing it for the money and maybe some of the classes aren't great. You don't love all the topics, but for me, although I do get some great education at these things for certain, but for me, it's exchanging that tribal knowledge and spending time with my friends and feeling like I have coworkers. And I think that there's a lot of value there. Absolutely. And, and I, it hit me like a freight train um, at, Im- at Shutterfest because it was a Midwest crowd that isn't in New York, L.A., and in these worlds where production is like everyday life here. I mean, I run into guys all the time on the street that are doing a job that I have seen. Like It, it doesn't exist, and they're just basically in a bubble and they're being taught basically what they're seeking out, not what's being brought to them, not whether what they're around uh, organically. So you, it is part of that. For me, the conferences beyond that is at where I stand as a host for Adorama. I'm looking at what everybody's kits are. I'm looking at how they use their gear. I'm looking at where the gaps are in what they're doing that could be better or the things that are trending and why are they popular? Why is everyone using that? What's the features about this thing that are making people so excited to get shooting again or something like that? Or... Do they not know? And they were just told to buy it. So it's like kind of a, I don't know what you call like a consumer-based research study or something like that. It's just very interesting to see. It's like people watching, but for photo nerds, I guess. Yeah. We actually have a a Shutterfest bingo we've played before where you like list all the things that you're going to see at every Shutterfest as you go throughout it. One of them's like giant angel wings strapped on somebody. One of the, you know, ones like uh, a photographer fog. shooting with, with, yeah, with their <laughs> cans of fog. This, actually, this year, this happened. Somebody set off a smoke bomb in the hotel for their photo shoot that they were doing in the hotel. <laughs> like, like, like people don't even think sometimes. But uh, yeah, so uh, real quick, since you have this chance that very few of us get to get your hands on all of this gear that nobody ever gets to touch. You know, uh, we only like hear about since you do a lot of reviews for Adorama and for your channel. Um, I wanted to specifically ask you this because I'm a Canon shooter primarily. Bure is a primarily a Fujifilm shooter. Nice. And, and you've shot across pretty much all platforms. Although I feel like I, I most associate you with Nikon. I've also seen you use a lot of different cameras. What do you think? Do you think Bure should buy the Fuji X-H2? The bu- <laughs> uh, you know... <laughs> I did the video on that camera. Um, I think you have to ask just listen, we're gonna we probably you guys have probably said this a million times. Like the gear right now is just 
amazing. And the fact that people... We say it all the time, you can't buy a bad camera, basically. Oh my gosh, the way people bitch about things. Like, this thing doesn't solve world hunger. I cannot believe this. I have yeah. to <laughs> cry about it on a rumor site now. Um, well, I have to. you have to ask yourself, what are you shooting now? And what are you benefiting from changing over to something else? And it was funny, a guy that I worked for... Uh, that wasn't even a photographer. I was working some other job. I think it was like metalworking or something at the time. And he, I was trying to buy a new camera. And he goes, what are you actually going to gain? Are you going to make more money? Do your people even realize what's different about it? So you have to look at your quality of life. Is it going to make your workflow faster or easier? Does it do something that you've been wanting to make easier in your life? Because we're experienced enough to not need the features to do things for us. But if there's something that it'll do and make me work faster, like for example... The, one of the things I love about the, the Nikon Z system is I can kill the flash from a button inside the grip. So now I'm doing double the time work when I'm on the street. I'm shooting ambient light when I squeeze the button. I take it off and I'm back into strobe mixing with, with ambient light. And I'm getting two different looks without even taking the camera off my eye. That to me was worth price of admission for me. So I was looking at things with the X-H2, which is just incredible. It, it's an awesome camera. You look at it, resolutions, Fujifilm shooters have not had before unless you're in the GFX system, which I do shoot the GFX 100S uh, aside the Z9. And you have to ask yourself, is there something that I'm getting in Fuji right now that the X-H2 isn't giving me? Do I need that resolution? Is there crops that I need to do? Is there something that my clients would appreciate? Because there's people that shot Hasselblads for years that never needed a Hasselblad, but because they had it, people hired them because they felt better about it or they could charge more for it because they were using a more expensive system and putting on a show. You know, you bring out the bigger modifiers, even though you're not going to use them and stupid stuff like that. We've all done it. Uh, at least, I don't know, maybe I'm the only like, you know, jerk putting on a show. No, no, no. I, I mean, I've even set up a light at a, at a reception or taking family photos that I did not need just so it looked like I was doing something more yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> That's what top, top uh, America's top model or whatever. That, look at those sets. It's like a thousand lights. The guy's using none. And it's, yep. it's, it's really what it is. I knew a photographer one time that when they were shooting wedding formals, they used to take a strobe with an optical sensor and point it backwards towards the people behind them. So anybody that was taking flash photos over their shoulder just got a face full of strobe oh, in all their pictures. So, that's genius. <laughs> Isn't oh that awesome? Oh my gosh, that's oh, yeah. genius. <laughs> wow, that's so good. Yeah, well, you know, um, do you remember at, uh, at Shutterfest when I had everybody hold up their camera iPhone light? To, to be yeah, my yeah, background. you used it as, as like in the background. I was I was there. Yeah, so I, I got that idea because Joe McNally a million years ago was in a crowd and he was like, "How many of you guys have Nikon strobes?" And he made them put them all in the same channel and he made them all his background when he was shooting on stage is it, because it was all photographers in the crowd. And I was like, "Well, what would have people have now? It's the iPhone light, and it would do the same kind of feel." So I, I this if you just think outside the gear you'd be surprised what other stuff it does besides eye autofocus i'm just saying although eye autofocus pretty impressive it it is it is it is it makes until, my life a lot easier well that's the other thing is like how does that camera use eye autofocus so for example nikon lets me actually push to whatever eye i want instead of it just picking which one and i'm and i'm married to it or especially in group scenes you know or do you need to set a closer eye do you need to favor a left or right eye does it have automatic do you trust it automatic and so my, my advice to Bure here is, do you think that there's an update to that? I don't know what Fujifilm you're using right now, Bure. I'm sorry. X-T4. Oh, X-T4 is phenomenal. Um, gets a little hot when you play video. That's the problem is going to the X-H2 is that I, I want the bigger grip, you know, because the, the X-T4 is not comfortable in my hand. Even yep. with a grip on it, I want the bigger grip. And then that, And the more megapixels would be nice for being able to crop a little bit more. But other than that, 
I'm not seeing a whole, I'm not see, I'm not going to make more money with it. The video, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to make more money than I do with the XT4. Blu-ray has, has doesn't could, could not care less about video features. Okay. If you made no. a Fuji XH2 that was $800 cheaper and didn't have any video, that's the one he would buy. You bet that's, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a businessman. It's all about it's all about how much money am I going to spend and how much money am I going to make for the money I spend. I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. I mean, that's kind of why I didn't invest too much into GFX lenses because it's the only camera I have that will take those lenses and it won't go across the board. So I got the few right. that I needed, you know. Well, what I'm wondering though, here's the thing. What I can't figure out is what's the X-T5 going to have? The reality is we're getting these cameras that do everything, but we're Everyone's asking for cameras that are getting more specific so they can buy the camera that's for them. Because everyone cries that this camera doesn't do the one thing because no camera's ever made just for you, right? It's really funny that I get a lot of older audience members yelling at me that they don't want to pay for video features. The reality is you are all paying for those video features whether they put them in there or not because you're already shooting video with mirrorless yamooks, all right? Like... <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, it's really what first it of all. Is. Wait, 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 first wait, wait, wait. Use of Mook. First I was just use of Mook say, on the show. I just want to say, yeah, congratulations there. Bam! First use of the word Mook on the pod. Two, th top, 360 episodes in, and we, nobody's ever said Mook before. <laughs> well, welcome to Brooklyn. Hey, you can take a shot. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this: uh, you can also do things where you can rent them nowadays. Um, but I will say that I feel that the autofocus is a different. Uh, autofocus on the X-H2. I feel it's definitely a little more grabbier, snappier, recognizes faces sooner. And the grip, I don't think people understand what ergonomics are like for people like us that have to hold a camera for 12 hours and right. then do it again tomorrow. And after that, or your hand starts getting sweaty. It's just like on a lot of Sony cameras, I can't fit my finger between the lens and the grip. And that alone, I don't care what this yep. thing does. I, I, I yep. can't function like that, you yep. know? Yeah, when Canon first came out with their first mirrorless, what was it? The R. The R. Was it? Yeah. The R. Yeah, the R. That was when I first picked it up, my fingernails scraped against the uh, the glass of the lens. When I put it in my hand, I was like, no. Wow. <laughs> I can't shoot a seven-hour wedding with this, you know, because there's not enough room for my fingers in between the grip and the, and, and the lens. Well, it's funny. There's a lot of reasons you can't usually shoot a wedding with that. Probably the, new, the one card slot is a little rough. And uh... Well, yeah. But I was just like, oh my gosh, I hope they don't all go this route. I think we can I think we can all agree that both Nikon and Canon rushed to get a camera out there just to get their lens system launched. I think that both of those the both initial entries, the Z six and Z seven, I don't think were particularly great. And this and the and the R has turned out to be a camera that is very mixed reviews on overall. And I don't think and since they've discontinued it, I don't think that, you know, they're gonna I don't think they're gonna make an R two. Or like an R Mark II, you know. I think it's going to be totally replaced with something else. But like those those initial, because Sony was so far ahead in having mirrorless bodies out. I think they just needed to get the lens systems launched. Because whereas they both made huge improvements, like the Z9 and the R3 and the R5 are all incredible. So I don't know if you guys are aware, but like camera development minimum is two years. Okay, so. To rush something to market, especially with an entirely new body system that they have to manufacture and think out for the long haul as far as what they're going to do for grips, batteries, lenses, strobes, whatever else. It's not that it was rushed. I will say that uh, they underestimated the market of what they were going up against because while we keep hearing about mirrorless, especially four years ago, the mass market was DSLR Canon beyond belief. Like you couldn't 
people did not even think about mirrorless in other countries that you'd, you'd be surprised. They're still selling older 5D Mark IV is still selling crazy to this day all over the world. And I think we get caught up in what's being talked about rather than what's actually happening in the game. And Nikon, I feel, if you look at their camera, they didn't change their body style except for adding a card slot. They kept going forward. But Canon, what they put out was... I don't know if this will work. So here's something with an older sensor, no stabilization, a touch bar we've never used before, the EOS system of the button layout thrown out the window, and yay. <laughs> and <laughs> it was more money than any other camera in its class by far, by like $500, and it offered less. But they didn't really look at the Canon user as, are we going to get Sony users? They were looking at, do we have an offering for our base? And if you took someone that only knew the 5D series, like, wow, I can see my exposure in real time. That was really their mentality. Not that it existed. And you have to understand that Nikon did mirrorless a million years ago with the Nikon 1. Canon had the M series, which was mirrorless, just crop body, but no one talked about it because it wasn't full frame. Just like Fujifilm is left out of the conversation a lot because they're only crop bodies. So it's like, it's a lot of jargon in the industry rather than people looking outside of themselves of what they want. You know, Sony, you have to realize in the early days, the Gen 2 bodies, small batteries, overheated, the build quality was questionable, the EVFs were very low resolution and weren't good to use, but the people that were using it were people from Instagram that just wanted to do cool things beyond their phone, and to them, this was awesome. And then it became a label where I grew up playing a Sony PlayStation. There's no Nikon PlayStation. There's no Nikon printers like Canon makes that you grew up with. It wasn't a household name for younger people. They were, they're getting their father's Sonys now, you know? So Wow. That's crazy to think about. That's crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on my father's Nikon that he was done with, right? So this is where we're at. The, the brand power has fallen behind because they're 100-year-old companies that were still manufacturing a momentum train that they had to put the brakes on to then start a system over again. That's insane. If you, tell, if you told these people uh, back in the SLR days that in just four years, they had a completely redesigned system with 30 lenses on either Canon and Nikon, it would have been shocking. You, there's no way you could have yeah. done it. Yeah, the, the timetable, yeah, the timetable which has happened is mind-blowing when you think about it, like what Canon and Nikon have both pulled off in trying to make the transition to mirrorless. It's pretty wild, really. During a shortage, during yeah. a pandemic, during factory closures, during mass layoff, like it was, it was not an easy haul, man. And I got to give credit to both these companies I feel like every company just gets bashed because negativity does so well on YouTube. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. As you make a video with a ne and the video with a negative uh, headline, you'll get more views. It'll see more people, but you also get a lot of nasty comments because the minute you go negative, you get the fanboys for whatever it is you're bashing. Even if in the video you're actually saying nice things, if the <laughs> people don't even read it, they see the negative title and they immediately just you know. And uh, it, it, you can tell they didn't watch the video. So negative definitely sells. But it, it's been a pretty amazing accomplishment by these companies to really pull this off. And to and to as not we were just talking about Nikon last week, as a matter of fact, on the the cameras they're about to announce before the end of the years and the lens lineup they're about to put out and about to put out the third version of the Z6 and the Z7. And that's all within the last two years. That's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, and, and one thing people don't talk about with the Nikon lens system, and I'm not trying to be some fanboy here, but having used everything, it was it's so thought out. All of the um, all of if not like most of them, if not all their lenses in the Z series have done something that some other companies have forgot, which is taking care of focus breathing. 
you're looking at me on a Z61 right now and it doesn't breathe. Like it's, this is a relatively inexpensive lens from the Z series and it doesn't breathe. If you have a lens that does breathe, meaning the edges shake when it's trying to focus, try watching a video like that and then be happy they just bought a $4,000 camera that does that. So they really thought out both sides of what they're doing with the glass. And then all you hear is, oh, the lens should be smaller. I, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like I want to perform, <laughs> you know, they've done it for a pretty right. good price point. A lot of companies are having a hard time putting out a decent price point right now. Uh, and glass, just so you guys know, is, is about three years R&D development because the glass for every company is basically handmade during prototype season, uh, session. So that's six weeks of just making the glass every time they got to redesign it. So it's crazy what they've been able to do. And now if you look at companies like Canon who are suing third-party lens companies for re reverse engineering the, their mount, which by the way, I side with Canon on that. They have patents. They're, they have a plan. Like you're not allowed to sell what they have patented. I'm sorry. Like I get it. I get what they're doing. They want to sell you their lenses first because they don't want to do what Sony did. And I'm not bashing any brands here, but Sony wanted you guys to buy the bodies when they had no lenses. They said, put any lens on it. We don't care. Just buy our bodies. And now they're chasing their own users who already bought the Sigmas and all the Tamrons and all the other lenses and are saying, please consider buying the Sony version, which by the way, is the only way you can use the in-body focus breathing compensation because the lenses don't have them built in. So true story, uh, Sony just bought my Nolta at this time, right? It was like mid-2000s or whatever. I'm not sure. And Dan Norton was next to me and he was like, I can't believe they're taking away the Minolta name and calling it Sony. Why wouldn't they leave Minolta, this known name in an industry? And they were like, watch a few years. Everyone knows Sony. Only photographers know Minolta. They're looking at a bigger picture. So they took Minolta lenses and ripped the mounts out and put their, their mount on it. I believe it was the A mount at the time with translucent mirrors or something like that. And look at where they are now. People all over who were just trying to get into photography saw the Sony name, trust the Sony name, have owned Sony, and they blew up because of it. And they do amazing technology. They do absolutely impressive stuff. But for photographers to adopt it, if you took any old school photographer, put a Sony in their hand, they were like, this is a computer with a lens. It's not mapped out like a camera. And that's where they struggled, was getting the photographers to come over. And then they, then so, uh, Canon and Nikon just seemed like they were behind, when in reality, they were in the middle of putting the brakes on a 100-year-old system to build a new one. You know, yeah, that's fair. Well, in your experience, when you pick up a Sony, you know, I love this because I've heard it so many times. It's a computer with a lens. What's the most glaring thing that you noticed when you first started picking up Sony that made you go, oh, this is not designed for photographer? It's funny because the second I pick it up, you can feel it that it's just not like my hand doesn't fit right. It, it prioritizes okay. being small. But number one, uh, I was very, very, and I still am very, very used to top screens where I check the screen, my head goes into the space of the camera, there was no top screen, and that's fine. But then they put that on their pro bodies, there was still no top screen. And then if you're a Sony user, you're used to that. But more than that, like if I'm really gonna get into it, they buried things in menus that I wanted face front, that I wanted to be able to get to right away, that, and everything with them, I'm not even kidding you, was, oh, we'll just set it to a custom button then. So when you went to product launches, they had to give everybody the cameras for like 30 minutes just to map out the way they would use that camera. If you have another Sony user hand you their, their camera and you're a Sony user, it still is a little foreign because it's set up for them. And it's, ah. so it's like these C1 through 3 buttons or C4 buttons. 
everything was set for what people wanted. And you could tell right away if someone was more of a video shooter than they were uh, a stills photographer based on the way those buttons were set up. And it was just kind of like, after you get used to them, you understand the designers or engineers rationale of how they mapped it out. But you have to get to that place in your head. And now Sony, if you notice, has refined a lot of things. Their grips have gotten bigger. They've changed a, a bit of their layout. They've, they've listened. They, they, they try to listen. I'll say that. Uh, but their user is their user. It, it's not meant for, not any camera is meant for everyone to adopt it. I mean, there's plenty of people that tell me Fuji is unbearable to them because of the dials and stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is, right? But for those people that like it, it's like the thing they like the most. Absolutely. It's those hard dials on the camera. Yeah. And you have to find out what's what's good for you. I mean, there's people that swear on Lumix. And if you talk to anybody about Lumix, they tell you it's not even consideration for them. So, but they do give you things in video mode like shutter angle, which is just a stupid little calculator inside your camera that lets you know what your settings are at without having to change shutter speed all the time. And that's enough for people to like marry themselves to Lumix, you know? But for me... yeah. Their autofocus is not going to be too easy for me to use in fast situations. So, you know. Well, right on. I think we got some time left. We got to get in some photography news. What do you say? We do. It is, uh, <laughs> it is that time. It is time for photography news. Photography, photography news. If you're like most photographers, you didn't go into business for the paperwork. Does the chaos of invoices, emails, and to-dos make you crazy? Well, that's where 17 Hats comes in. Their all-in-one mobile-friendly platform organizes your business. 17 Hats handles the time-sucking tasks like payment reminders, capturing leads, scheduling your images. With 17 Hats, important emails go out automatically and quotes, contracts, and invoices, click, click, paid. Small wonder that thousands of photographers swear by 17 Hats. You'll free up so much time from day-to-day -day stealing to-dos, it's like you've cloned yourself. You'll be able to focus on what you do best, photography. Meanwhile, 17 Hats does exactly what you need done to manage your business, just as if you were doing it. So why not clone yourself with 17 Hats? Visit 17hats.com to learn more. And be sure and use the code PHOTOBOMB to get 50% off your first year. Uh, well, we have to talk, of course, uh, about Leica. Hail Leica. Uh, Hail Leica. Hail Leica. Um, I want to talk about the story that you brought to my attention, which is the latest uh, Q2 edition that they have come out with in collaboration with Seal. Who's ever so happy? Kiss from a Rose Seal. Uh, Leica has come out with a new special edition camera and it's beautiful. It's absolutely it beautiful. It really camera. is. Leica, God bless them, they do make a beautiful camera. And this one is called like It's called Dawn. Uh, and they, um, they, I especially like that on the strap, on the strap, they have inscribed. Uh, lyrics from uh, Kiss from a Rose. Yes, isn't that... You became the light on the dark side of me is inscribed on the strap. Uh, and uh, it's just a beautiful camera for a mere $5,995. Okay, first of all, it's a Leica. That's probably fairly cheap for Leica. But he here's the thing that I love about this, about the Dawn Edition Q2, is that it's... What the hell does Seal have to do with yeah. anything to do with this camera? Is yes. he a photography enthusiast? Did he help design it? Yeah. And this yeah. sort of, it's got this uh, Japanese style of fabric art kind of thing, and it, it's really pretty. But this is on the Leica release document. This is how they say, because right. here's, here's, they're going to stretch it to somehow do this collaboration. Because apparently, according to Seth Miranda, they have done artist collaborations like this before. So here's the stretch. You ready? Paying homage 
to the soulful lyrics of Seal's songs, the special edition set celebrates the human connection in the art of making a photograph, shining light on the subjects of a frame, while painting unique perspectives for artists behind the lens. Yeah, it's just, it seems like a little bit like a stretch. <laughs> well, well, guys, take a step back, because right now you're okay. talking about their brand on a podcast with an audience and keeping their brand very, very relevant. Are you talking about the new Pentax special edition? No, huh? Oh, okay. No, that that jet black one. I did read the article and I found that very boring. So I picked this yeah. one instead. Yeah. You know? I think I thought about, I tell you, to be honest, though, I thought about getting the seal edition, but I opted instead to get the uh, Chris Brown edition because it can really take a beating. Oh. 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 Well, it gives, no, gives a beating. <laughs> gives a beating, no? Gives a beating. <laughs> gives no. A beating. <laughs> you, it, it would have been the Rihanna edition. Oh, really gosh. No, no. no, I'm I'm no that would have been, been bad. That would have been too good. That was, no. I'm only going to, I'm going to pick on the guy who deserves to be picked on. Although you're 100% right. We've talked about this before. Although I think that I honestly don't know why any working pro would want a Leica. And they're not for working pros. These are for like serious enthusiasts with extra money to spend. That's who Leica is for. They're not the best camera on the market in any regard, whether it be image quality, sensor quality, functionality. There's nothing about a Leica that makes them the best. I'm not saying they're not good, but you can find a better camera for less money from almost every single camera manufacturer than a Leica. I would buy a Fujifilm over this any day of the week. That being said, Leica is a luxury brand and a luxury brand's expensive not because they're the best, but because they're associated with some kind of historic value based on the name of the brand. And they are incredibly good. They are the Rolex of cameras, not because they make the best. And Rolex is hardly the best watch in the world, but they do such a good job of creating the legend of Rolex to the point where you can't even just go buy a Rolex. You have to like become best friends with a watch dealer and get them to sell your Rolex at double retail if you even want to get one. And so Leica is very much like creating anything they can do to blow up the legend of Leica is good for them. So we're talking about them right now. We talk about them often. Anytime they do something that seems ridiculous, deep inside, I'm kind of like, these guys are really, really good at what they do. They're really good. It's really smart, really good marketing. They're one of the few, if not maybe the only camera company that their older cameras actually hold or gain value. So by a lot, there is yes. something to be said for that. It's definitely so believe it or not, press guys, uh, some old school press guys love Leicas, especially the Q2. It is like an go around their shoulder strap, very discreet. They get shots they feel like they couldn't get with a bigger camera on their whatever. Uh, they perform beautifully. Have either of you shot Leica at all? No, not taken out on a shoot, but I've used them before. Yeah, and I had a friend. I had a I had a friend who had the Fuji X100V. That's what I, I have. have. Yeah, and and he switched to the Leica and swore the Leica was better. The Leica color processing in the glass is. You cannot put into words if you understand what you're looking at. As a, if you're a picky photographer and you're looking for certain things, you will not see certain image quality out of other. They just there's a processing happening off of what they're doing with the sensor, which is what a lot of companies do, right? Sony makes over half the sensors in this industry, and somehow they don't. The other cameras that like Nikon has Sony sensors in there. Yeah, Sony manufactured it, but their image processing and what they want out of the sensor creates the Nikon look. Same thing with Leica. I mean, Leica uh, has, I believe it's Panasonic or the, the Tower Jazz. I'm sorry, Tower Jazz, I think, makes their, their sensors. You cannot find skin tones in other cameras like uh, like a, a Leica or the 
the color space actually exists within the lens of the Leica. If you change, if you take a Leica glass and put it onto another camera, you still will not see what you are seeing out of a Leica. I'm not trying to over-romanticize it, but when you shoot it, it, to an extent that Leica knows this so well, they have Leica events where they just hand out memory cards, let you use the cameras because they want you to take the images home so you understand. They're not trying to sell you right there like, it does a million frames a second or it does all this video. Most of them don't even have autofocus in them, all right? So, so it's like... Mm. It's really, um, it puts your head in a space. It's an experience thing. The range finder, there's very few range finders even are made today at all. Uh, it, it's really incredible what they do. I do understand like one third of the features for tw 20 times the price, especially on their uh, medium format ones, which are like $60,000 and weigh a ton. But they're for certain people. I mean, you look at Mark Mann's work or anybody that's shooting in controlled situations and you're just getting this quality of imagery that you just can't, um, you can't get otherwise. And, and, you know, you choose the tool you want for the job you're doing and what you're trying to create. And if you're a rich guy that's bored and you got a bunch of money, ah, why not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, it's the, it's the, the number one camera of dentists and surgeons. Yep. Is the, <laughs> the, like it really is. And it's got that name attached to it. So I also wanted to talk about uh, this week. Let's, uh, let's move on over to something that I think that Seth will appreciate. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is just because I've got a bunch of these in my office, is that uh, there's a new Funko Pop out there. Oh. And it is a, it's a Polaroid camera Funko Pop. And so what? I want to put this out there in the universe because we make, we make a lot of fun of like the coffee mugs that look like lenses. And I'm sure, yeah, like, if you're yeah. a photographer, you've gotten one of those for Christmas, like, every year you get at least. So everybody's had these. This is something that I would actually like to get as a gift in my stocking from Santa Claus or, uh, or, or the, uh, the Hanukkah armadillo or whoever. What is it about the classic Polaroid land camera that has such nostalgia? I don't know. Let me sh I'll send you a link to this Funko Pop. And I pulled this article off of Petapixel. This thing, I'll post it right in the chat. This thing is kind of neat looking. Yeah, My 16-year-old daughter goes to the Goodwill and comes home with a shirt with the old faded Polaroid land camera uh, logo on it. And I'm like, do you even know what that is? No, but I think it's cool. Exactly. It's just got a very, it's just got a very specific design vibe that just says '80s. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's very, very cool. I think it's neat. But it's tangible. It has a soul. When you hand someone a Polaroid, you remember that. You know, it's the only one that exists. That's it. You know what I mean? I have a Polaroid memorial tattooed on my thigh when they when it first went down. Uh, it, it's 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 real. I mean, you want to talk about remembering times well you pulled out a polaroid when there was something you wanted to remember and it just sticks with you right and your mother shot you with it or i know a lot of models love it because they shot they were shot with so many polaroids during fashion week and you know it, it's this one step beyond we're making just ones and zeros like that, that can be manufactured over and over again and just shared out there although i think it's kind of funny when people do polaroids and take a picture with their phone <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> like okay right um you know, it's one of these things that's an intimacy that that Polaroid can't be shared with anyone else except for the person you really handed it to. Even if you do take a picture with your phone, although now we have these. Uh, oh, is that the new that's the new Fuji that's digital and Polaroid? Yeah. So you can change like the filters of the lens and the type of film just by and then prints it out. And you can have another copy printed on the fly. It kind of takes away the the scarcity of the one Polaroid, but it is kind of cool that you can share it. That is the kind of the magic of it is when you take a Polaroid and you give it away, it's gone. That's yep. it. And that, that's just, and that is, there's something kind of magical there. And I think that's cool. But, you know, as far as this story goes with this Funko Pop, 
I will welcome that from any of my family members who are thinking about buying me a Canon uh, L-series lens coffee mug this year. Go ahead and do this instead. I'll take the <laughs> Polaroid camera Funko Pop instead. I'll also throw this out. I don't know, Seth, if you've seen this, but there's a documentary that I watched on Netflix called The B-Side. And it's about uh, Elsa Dorfman, who was a Polaroid photographer, and that her entire career was shooting Polaroids. And she was one of the few photographers that was given access to the giant, full-size, like like six-foot Polaroid camera that yep. Polaroid had. And to see these giant six-foot Polaroid prints that they would make, and there's only one. There's no negative. This is it. You know, Joe it's McNally, really fascinating. Joe McNally, the 9-11 portraits, he decided to do it with one the six foot Polaroid machine. He had people that were first responders that weren't models. Every shot cost him over $300. If they blinked, if they were weird, he had to throw it out. Wow. And so there's only one copy of each one of these survivors, first responders, people that are involved in 9-11. He got 81 shots off, I think, or 81 portraits. And they're now in... That's an expensive photo project. Holy cow. And now they're in the 9-11 museum because they were the only one that exists. And he chose that for a reason, a six-foot Polaroid, which took 10, I think like five people to load each sheet of film and pull it. <laughs> But just to show you how Joe's smart, underneath the lens of the Polaroid, he put an RZ67 just as backup to have medium format shots while he was shooting the Polaroids. But, I mean, that's he could have shot it on digital and had these portraits and people would have probably thought the same thing. But he wanted to show how much weight there is in that one image that could only exist for that moment. And he chose the Polaroid. And if you want to see him, you have to go to the 9-11 Museum. Or, buys, or, or there's the 9-11 book that I think goes to the families or something like that. Seth, are you a Capture One shooter? Yes, I am. Full of force. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Bure and I are both also Capture One users. Uh, this in the news this week, we've talked about Capture One recently came out with an iPad app, which is kind of cool, but it doesn't really do everything that you'd want it to do. And so they just added a couple of things that I think are really cool. You can tether directly to Capture One on the iPad, now wired or wirelessly. And in addition to that, this is a feature that Initially, when this rolled out, I said, unless it has this feature, I'm not interested. You can now add preset styles to the images that are coming in. So your images, if you're shooting for a client, as they're coming onto the iPad, it could be applying presets to the next capture, just like it does on the desktop version, which I think is pretty cool. So any interest in the iPad version of this, Seth, for you, of, of getting Capture One for iPad? Uh, yeah, especially for the trade shows, the conferences. I mean, if I don't have to carry around a $4,000 laptop that I was resting my career on for a moment, yeah, that'd be great. You know, <laughs> just hand out an iPad <laughs> and shoot to it and let people see that. The wireless, I have to test out. They just added it for the Z9, so I'm going to go check that out. I I can only imagine how much battery all the Wi-Fi eats out of our cameras. Uh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to you gotta just, I mean, then you got another wire because you got to shoot with an AC adapter or it'll die every 25 <laughs> frames. But yeah, yeah, it, it takes a, quite a bit of battery out. I shoot wire, uh, wirelessly to the Canon Camera Connect app all the time in the studio, and I change batteries quite a bit as a result. On which camera? Oh, that's the R5, which is, which is fine. It's not terrible on battery, but it's, it's not amazing. None of the mirrorless cameras are really amazing unless you get the big battery like the R3 or the Z9, especially if you come from the, Mark, the 5D Mark IV. I, would shoot a, I, could, I could shoot a whole wedding or a corporate event and not change the battery once. I know. You know, it would yeah. just last all day long. That's, I guess that's to me that's the biggest disadvantage to switch from DSLR. Uh, what do you got, Boo Ray? 
Well, uh, it was uh, something to see that the folks at Getty Images have decided to ban all computer-generated AI images. This is a big conversation. We've yeah, talked and about Shutterstock is going to do the same thing. And what I find interesting about this is that they say what they're really concerned about is copyright issues. These AIs, they scan millions of photos from the web, right? And this is where they, they get all the learn, learning that they need to create everything. So now the question starts to become... How are these images being manipulated that the AI is then using? Are they being manipulated enough? Are we, are we traveling down the road towards a giant lawsuit that we just don't see coming yet? When somebody figures out a way to say, that's my image that was used in a thousand gen- computer-generated images, and it hasn't been modified enough to make a derivative or, you know, or something along those lines. In addition to that, there is the prompts, which this I'd never even occurred to me. You can do a prompt and say one of your prompts can be Ansel Adams. You know, Ray Perry, you want your photo to look like that person's work. Are we going to have a situation down the line where people can sue because by using a prop that is their name, you are stealing their style? Or it's certainly going to reference their images in generating the the AI if you say the name of a famous right. photographer, right? Like, right. So, I mean, I had never really thought about this, but now they're saying that even the prompts could be open to some sort of copyright litigation down the line. I mean, it really is a whole new world. Seth, have you, have you looked into this at all? Have you thought about this, the whole AI thing that's happening? I mean, the closest I think I've looked into AI is this whole NFT discussion that we just went through. Um, you have to find a way to own digital medium this nowadays. I mean, we, we just have to find a way that you can actually say you own a digital medium. The problem with AI is you're more of the proponent of the final project product rather than you are the final product. Like, like if I said, I want to make a landscape with AI, Angel Adams, you know, Peter Lick. And all I did was prompt this machine to do so. So who actually is, because I bought, what, I buy a license to a software. Is it the software company that actually owns that image? Because I didn't make the software that made this. So like, where are we going with this? But then you could say, well, you don't own Photoshop either. And you retouched all those images you did. So maybe they own a piece of your image now too. So we're going to get into use, this. Use a filter. Use a filter on that image. Uh, you know, you know the people who made that filter, do they own a piece of it? How far back do you pull that thread though? You go like, I also shot it on a Canon camera. Does yep. Canon own part of my image? Now? It's yeah. Canon's like color. Yeah, it's Canon's color profile or whatever. So yeah, I, I see the point here. But this is specifically, this story is from the point of view of a company that sells stock photos. And so I don't think that this, for them, I think it's more erring on the side of caution at the yeah, moment. I think it's a smart play on their part. They're like, we need to wait till we get some more legal ease. Well, if they felt like they could make stuff. millions of dollars free and clear from this, they wouldn't hesitate. This isn't some kind of like moral thing for the arts. This is like, we don't want to get sued because we sell millions of images a day. And so they're covering their butts at the moment until some of this goes through courts, I think. And once there's an established precedent for who owns the image, the you know, um, or or to what extent do you own an image that you create with AI? Like, do, do the prompts that you come up with entitle you to a copyright ownership of it? And that's not been established legally yet. This is still brand, brand new stuff. And so you'll see if, if there's a way for them to make more money off of these things, they're absolutely going to do it, I think. It's just right now, I think that they're weighing the, 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 the benefit versus the risk. Let me ask you this, though, Seth. Here's, here's something we've talked about on the show, and it's a direct question for you. Do you think that this sort of fantastical art, you know, this sort of art that you, you typically saw people who were just master Photoshop painters would create, right? You see this in competition all the time. Do you think that, that the value of this sort of art is going to lessen 
now that it is so easy for someone to just put prompts into a machine and get a piece of art that looks like that? Honestly, yeah, because look what happened with photography when film wasn't what we were using and we started going to ones and zeros. We started seeing day rate shift and used stock photography used to get paid one image, right? You put it up there as a stock photography. Now you have to submit so many that make three cents on iStock photo, maybe, hopefully, right? It's going to be the same thing. If you're creating a mass quantity of something, how can it be, how can the value raise? And if there's more people creating it, how could the value raise? So I just think that we're going to move towards that, honestly. And don't get me started on competition photography stuff because it is all illustrated junk to me. Like I can't, I'm not trying to hate on anybody, but like how many times have we seen an image win on a competition that comes to go? Is that even a photo? I can't even tell anymore. That's a, that's a whole episode or two worth of debate right there. Yeah. No question. It yeah. kills me. Yeah, it, I, it, it, I'm getting ads on my Instagram that I'm like, how is this a photography course? It looks like a garbage painting with 20 filters on it. I don't know what you're, I don't care what kind of master's system, but I'm not going to, but the, uh, <laughs> what I think, honestly, if Getty leaned into AI, like they thought it was even going to make them millions. I feel like you would have droves of photographers leaving that platform so hard that somebody would have to respond by making a new platform. Even if it's smaller, even if it takes a minute to get going, I don't think traditional photographers or people that are killing themselves lugging those heavy bags around at press conferences want to be part of something that is going to let someone just type in prompts and put up something that somebody will eat at their uh, profit base for. I just think that you would see a mass exodus of working photographers, I think. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of, of legal stuff going on, not to mention who, who owns copyright, but the images used in it. Because like if you take a photo, create a photo of someone and then use that for commercial oh. purposes, like if, like if I prompt the AI to create an image of President Obama at the podium, you know, addressing this, the, the staff and then behind him, the, you know, the whole country is, is uh, laid out behind him with the American flag and an eagle riding a Harley, like... Is that using someone's image? <laughs> and if it's AI generated and it pulled from images that already exist on the net, then it might be. So it's the same exact thing as music. It's just like hip hop. How many artists got away with sampling music for a decade? And now there's 17 songwriters listed on a song, a hip hop song. There'll be 17 songwriters listed on the song uh, because now they're finally having to do it. It just happened with Beyonce, right? She, she sampled someone. She didn't get the money. She paid. She went through it perfectly legal. The record label got the money. The artist didn't. And now that's a song and everyone's enjoying it or whatever, making money, except the person who actually created what it was sampled from. Are we going to get to that place or are we going to skip all of that because we learned something from the music industry? Yeah. Well, who knows? Photographers might the be The case for me that, that was a big eye opener was the one with the uh, Statue of Liberty stamp where they created a stamp that had the Statue of Liberty face on it. And it turns out that this, the, the, the drawing of that Statue of Liberty face on the stamp was not taken from the Statue of Liberty, but was taken from the one that's in front of the New York, New York Casino in Las Vegas. <laughs> that, they, they, that they had used, they liked it better. They, they just, they thought it was a better looking face for whatever oh. reason. And so that was the what they didn't actually use it. They just, they recreated it basically for the stamp. And the artist who created that statue sued and won. Because he was able to say the reason you used that particular image for your stamp was because of what I had done to that image to make it more approachable to people and to make it liked more by people. And therefore, you were using my work to sell your stamp. And he won. But they made that statue. AI is making what people are going to prompt it to make. 
Right, right. But again, the other question is, like I said, it's pulling images from other places. Where is it pulling those images from? If you don't know where, where it's pulling the images from, you also don't know if it has changed the image enough for it to truly be derivative. Until years later, after it's been the face of your company for 20 years, suddenly you find out that the AI didn't really change that image very much. And the guy who cre created it just came after you with a huge loss. Well, I think what's going to happen is they're going to establish a database you can opt into as an image creator and you will get royalties or whatever based on whatever's pulled. If the AI can be tuned to only pull from a certain base then you kind of right. eliminate all the problems because it can only use the images that were given permission like royalty-free music. So I think that we're going to have to establish what it's being fed from and it'll probably mitigate this whole problem. Or all of the robot overlords that are creating these images for us, this AI, will just uh, take over the planet, kill all the humans, and then copyright's not going to be a problem anymore. Because as we all know, the robots will create a perfectly equitable, communist, socialist That's society true. where everyone is equal. And uh, the only humans left alive are the ones who remember to say please and thank you to yes. Alexa and Siri. Well, teach oh, your daughters about Terminator. Praised. Get your kids those Terminator uh, <laughs> trilogy. Get them, uh, get them on that... Uh, that's Skynet. The, uh, my, the Wi-Fi at my house is already called Skynet, just in case. <laughs> Unbelievable. We got to thank the, uh, Seth for being on the show. We got to wrap this up. Oh, man. Has it been okay. A, wow. That was fast. Yeah, it does. It typically goes pretty fast. But uh, hey, man, thanks for being a special guest. It's really nah, nice man. to have you. Where, where can everybody find you when they want to look you up on the internet? You can find me everywhere under Last X Witness, including all the extra social stuff that no one cares about because we're gaining a new platform every five minutes. But... I will see you there. Yes. <laughs> okay. Photobomb is written and produced by Boo Ray Perry and Gary Hughes and edited by Face Fioretti. You can find us online in our group on Facebook. It is at facebook.com slash groups slash Bombardiers Lounge. Bombardiers. Our website is photobombpodcast.com. Gary's website is hughesfioretti.com. Yes, it is. My website is boorayperry.com. And you can email us questions at photobombpodcast.com. We'll see you back here next week. See you later. Bye.